Thanks, Melissa. Well, hopefully you've kept 2 Timothy still open in front of you. If you haven't done so, please uh, turn back open to that. And if, if you need another hint in the Pew Bible or the Church Bible, it is page 1196, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Well, we live in a world of warning labels, don't we? Everywhere we look, we find them, so much so that at times they've tended to have the opposite impact. And some uh, experts have concluded that we have become guilty of overwarning people of potential risk, with the result that such risks go ignored. I don't know about you, but when I am warned that the contents of my takeaway coffee cup may be hot, my response is to think I should hope so. I would actually be upset if it wasn't hot, or products that are marketed to help us sleep warning us that they may cause drowsiness. Go figure. A city in the U.S., this is my favorite, posted a sign warning that touching wires that powered the tram caused death. It would also lead to a $200 fine. (laughs) So while these warnings seem ridiculous to us, and many of them are, aren't they? The effect can be that we fail to see and appreciate genuine dangers and threats that really do exist. And that is something to consider as we turn to the passage of Scripture we'll be considering tonight uh, in the third chapter of 2 Timothy, what Melissa read for us. And we're continuing the conversation of guarding the gospel against false teachers. And Paul doesn't want Timothy to be naive in his expectations regarding the threat of these false teachers who would distort and corrupt the gospel message. And in this passage, we'll be presented with a warning as well as a window. See, there's a warning about a terrible trend that will characterize a period called the last days. And there is a window into how that was being expressed in the sinful activities of these false teachers who were corrupting the gospel for self-serving ends. And so we're going to consider that warning first if we notice what Paul's words are a bit of a foreboding tone in that first verse, isn't it? When he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now that doesn't sound good, does it? Doesn't sound particularly encouraging, but what does he mean? What are these last days of which he's speaking? Is he referring to something in his own time or far into the future from his time or from our own? Um, What are these last days in relation to you and me? Are they happening now? Are we in them now? Is the end here? Is it near? (laughs) Is it somewhere far out into the distant future? And for insight, I would suggest that we look to the book of Hebrews, which begins with these words. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 in the beginning part of verse 2, where the writer of Hebrews says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, And many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Did you catch the expression? The last days has correlation to the coming of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. The Old Testament prophets painted a picture of the last days with God's righteous rule, his kingdom coming on earth, a time of blessing, a time of renewal, but also one of judgment for the ungodly and vindication for God's people. And the arrival of its king, Jesus, meant that this final chapter had begun. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts after Jesus' death, 
his resurrection, his return to heaven and promised return, the Holy Spirit, we read in the few, first few chapters of Acts, came powerfully upon the disciples so that, you remember, they were in hiding. They were frightened for their lives. And when the Spirit came upon them, they went out in boldness declaring the wonders of God. And in explaining what was happening, Peter pointed the confused crowds to the words of the prophet Joel. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, referring to Joel chapter 2, he says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So from its inception, the church, we have been living in the last days and shall continue to do so until he returns. We're in the final chapter. And the pages are continuing to turn to its ultimate conclusion. So, yes, we are in the last days. And yes, there is an element yet future to come. But what relevance did this have for Timothy in light of the false teachers Paul is warning him against? And as we read on, we'll see that the warning he gives portrays this intensifying pressure, this trend that will characterize the last days, which Paul expresses in the form of what is sometimes called a vice list. Now look at what it says as we come to chapter 3, verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. This list is a, a representative catalog, if you will, of attitudes and behaviors that in Paul's thought processes captures the essence of this expression, terrible times. And uh, it's, it's particularly how this relates to these false teachers. So it's, it's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list. And it shows some structure and some relationship between its elements. But in other ways, you can almost see Paul walking around, rattling these things off as they come to mind of what it looks like. And did you notice a recurring theme or expression in all the items that were found there? Because interwoven in all these examples is misplaced loves. Beginning with people being lovers of themselves and ending being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It may be helpful to keep in mind that Paul's list is not meant to only to be a, a reflection of society at large, but it is also an indictment of the false teachers present in the church where Timothy was. And it is a warning of what a corruption of the gospel leads to. So this list is somewhat tailored to the need that Timothy had and targets the particular evils associated with the false teachers Timothy of Timothy's time. And so atop the list we find lovers of self. And if you think through the teachings of Jesus, the polar opposite of Jesus' call for those who would follow him, even recently as we considered them in the Gospel of Mark, whoever would come after me must what? Deny themselves. And take up their cross. When asked, what are the greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. To love Him supremely. And so self-love is atop this list. 
And the expression finds, uh, self-love finds its expression in the love of money, which is the next one that follows, which history demonstrates, doesn't it, to be the near constant companion of false teaching. But what of the rest of the list? What qualities do we find there? I'm going to try to group them into some semblance of, of order here, but Arrogance, if you go through the list, seems to capture the idea associated with several of the items listed. Notice he says boastful and proud, connected closely. And later we find that there's conceit. So all these things are an angle or a variation of this idea of arrogance. And false teaching feeds human arrogance rather than promoting proper humility before God. Notice that song we sang, these great gospel songs we sang. Then I shall bow in humble adoration. A true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding of what it does, produces humility in our hearts. Not conceit, not arrogance, not boastfulness. And so Paul continues, it becomes clear that false teaching promotes the tendency of people not only to be arrogant and to be self-absorbed, but to be abusive toward one another. The word translated abusive here, it's in verse 2 amidst that list, has the idea behind it of verbal assaults. It's a word where we get kind of blasphemy from. and Perhaps it's uh, in the first book that Paul wrote to Timothy, he talks of malicious talk and he talks of slander in this list in verse 3. The abusive theme is seen in other terms such as being brutal, did you catch that? Which stands in stark contrast when you think of a, an elder. If you were to go back to uh, 1 Timothy and look at the qualifications of an elder, it says, not violent, but gentle. Again, in that first letter. Abusiveness, again, is seen in being treacherous and rash. It implies a complete lack of limits in the pursuit of something. One Bible commentator characterizes these qualities together as someone who stops at nothing to gain his or her ends. So arrogance, abusiveness. Perhaps a third theme in this list could be put forward simply as absence. The absence of things that should be present but are not. And there's a, a number of them here. But the next item may seem out of place to us. Perhaps some of the younger members of the audience perked up. Why the emphasis on disobedience to parents when drawing attention to these false teachers? And perhaps it captures a tendency of false teaching to sabotage the relationship to authority and disrupt the healthy functioning of it, particularly in the family and society. The number of times I have seen false teachers or cults disrupt the natural relationships of families and seek to reorder them. Again, a recurring theme. And it highlights an absence of appropriate respect, disobedience to parents. But the list goes on with more serious negatives or statements of something that is missing, that should be present. Did you catch them? Ungrateful, unholy, without love, or unloving unforgiving, moving forward a little without self-control. And again, these words just kind of flow in rapid succession. It's almost like it's just a stream of consciousness for him as he's reflecting in his mind of what does it look like when we lose the gospel and people act in these categories. 
arrogance, abusiveness, and the absence of things that show up, things that should be present. And they decry a general and pervasive absence of things like thankfulness, just moral decency. That's the idea behind holiness. Moral decency and limits to our behavior. Common human affection and consideration. Society gets more more and more brutal. Willingness to be reconciled with others. This is not a flattering list. And while we may be comfortable in having it spotlight the thoughts and actions of others, we would likely bristle a little bit to think uh, of any of it applying to us. But if we are honest with ourselves, we would have to own that we are prone to self-love and seek pleasure above love and devotion to God. It's what, what is at the core of our sin, and it is why we so desperately need what Paul is trying to tell Timothy to guard. It is why we so desperately need the gospel. We are all, every one of us, guilty of at least one thing on this list. And as James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us in chapter 2 of that epistle, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Interesting brutality again. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. This is why Paul's warning to Timothy and through him to, to us is so vitally important. Corrupting the gospel, destroying the gospel, destroys the sole solution to sin found in Christ and ends up only keeping on and contributing to our own moral degradation and decline. And so in light of this, Paul is unequivocal. If you notice, there's one command, one exhortation in this whole passage that we've read the only appropriate response to this warning irrespective of how respectable somebody might seem spiritual they may seem kind they may seem on the outside he says of those who have a form of godliness but deny its power have nothing to do with them why because what is at stake is so vital the gospel of jesus christ breaks the power of sin it enables those who respond to it in faith to live in freedom of it from it and those teachers who are denying the power of the gospel this fundamental purpose of why jesus came were choosing to live in ways that are not in alignment with his kingdom also known as the terrible times. You see why he framed it that way? It's framed in the coming kingdom of God. It's coming with God's coming judgment on the world and this period of time in which we're living, these false teachers are evidencing that terrible time. Does that make sense? And they were tools of the enemy. And Timothy is given clear instruction. Don't mess around with this have nothing to do with it in order to guard the gospel that had been entrusted to him. And there is still need to protect and proclaim the gospel from those who would seek to corrupt it for self-serving ends. This is a warning label that doesn't expire until Jesus comes back. 
We are still in the last days and are not immune to the terrible times ourselves. So we are given this warning and are also provided not only with the warning, but a window that reveals how this was working its way out in the activities of these false teachers. Look with me at verse 6 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the fun part. Matt, I'm so thankful for the passage you assigned to me. Get to talk about <laughs> gullible women and all these other things. I get to navigate this. This is great. But look, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So he gave a warning. Terrible times. Here's what they'll look like. And now here's a window. What happens? This is what it looks like. In a casual glance, these verses, jokingly, I just said, they could be misconstrued as misogynistic. They could be viewed as portraying women in a bad light. But that is not the case at all, which we'll endeavor to, to establish here. But we should first look at how Paul describes the subversive and stealthy manner in by which these false teachers take advantage. They don't come openly. They don't come uh, committing themselves to people's you know, conscience, as Paul says in other places, but they worm their way in. They gain control. Taking captive is the idea of the words there, like kidnapping those who would be easy prey for them. And in Timothy's context, it appears that there were certain women, for one reason or another, who were particularly vulnerable to the false teacher's advances. Something in their makeup and not their gender. <laughs> made Paul describe them literally as little women as opposed to strong women, right? You think of Timothy's mother and grandmother. I'm sure Paul would say strong, godly women. He's saying these are little, there's something in them that has made them vulnerable, weak. It was a way of saying they were deficient, foolish, and open to those who would manipulate them for their own ends. They were also likely women of financial means because think back to lovers of self, what came right after the list with these false teachers? Lovers of money. There was a compelling reason driven by self-interest in the false teacher's pursuit of these particular women. And Paul further describes the women as being loaded down with sins, which brings to mind an image of someone stumbling under the burden of their past choices and their present reality. So financial exploitation is most likely the motivation, but exploitation can take other forms, can't it? Which may be implied in the expression swayed by all kinds of evil desires. This is a picture of someone who desperately needs the liberating power of the gospel, but is instead led astray by a wolf in sheep's clothing into greater enslavement to sin via their own evil desires. It's compounded everything. They've become ensnared, coming under the spell of false teaching, going further and further down its path of religious expression, but further and further from the truth and godly life that the gospel promotes. In fact, it's this mystical and magic dynamic that Paul raises when he compares the situation to what happened to Moses in Egypt when God sent him to free Israel from their enslavement to Pharaoh. That just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth, says in verse 8. So while not explicitly identified by name in the Bible, there was a tradition that had developed identifying two of the magicians or sorcerers of Pharaoh's court as, the, as these brothers that are named. 
And they opposed Moses' mission of liberation in his day by means of their dark arts and deception. And so by comparing the false teachers of Timothy's time to them, Paul is portraying their actions as a similar deception and attack on the truth. One that had an effect that was spellbinding and destructive in its impact. And so if Paul had concluded you know, the warning with these strong words, have nothing to do with these people. Having pulled back the curtain to give a window into the activities of the false teachers, Paul has similarly strong words. He says their minds are depraved. And in terms of the faith, the gospel, they are rejected. Now, if you were with us last week, you may remember the charge Paul gave to Timothy regarding the gospel in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. I remember this verse well because where I studied at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, there is a stained glass window when you arrive as a student with this verse on it. As you come to study God's word, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In other words, this was not a minor point of disagreement. It's a difference between being approved, notice the contrast, and rejected in the eyes of God. It's a matter of life and death, light opposed to darkness. This is why Timothy must draw firm lines of distinction and have nothing to do with them because the gospel that sets people free is at stake. And this is why we must have absolute clarity and conviction when it comes to the gospel. Why we must draw lines ourselves to ensure that God's only solution to the world's biggest problem, our sin, your sin, my sin, does not get corrupted for self-serving ends. Like Timothy, we must not be naive to real threats. This warning label is for real. (laughs) And none of us can afford to ignore the message of it. Nor, nor the picture it portrays of what happens when we do. So as we close with some thoughts of application, um, let us be clear that Paul's words have nothing to do, um, have everything to do with these false teachers with particular application. There are some areas um, when we think of, I'll just, my fear when you come to a message like this is we put out a warning and the, the, the response can be rather knee-jerk. And we become critical and look for every area where someone's out of line. And while there are doctrinal differences that are non-essential and it's wrong for us to draw and be unkind and and not generous there, um, those distinctions are important but not critical. What we have here is is a danger that we need to see for what it is. When we become overly critical, we can become unattractive and um, a critical posture towards those with whom we disagree is, is not very compelling. But this danger that Paul warned against does exist. And it's actually flourishing in our time in different ways. Um, the internet has multiplied the scope and scale of our access to teaching, hasn't it? And how can we know what is true, and what is false. So in light of Paul's words to Timothy, I would just suggest some questions that might be a good place to start. When you listen to something on a podcast or watch something on the, uh, you know, the internet, whatever the source, 
One question, does money and financial success seem to have an unhealthy emphasis in a ministry? Does it promise prosperity, blessing, and having your best life now? Do those teaching display humility and demonstrate service? Does the ministry pretend too much on the persona and image of those communicating? Mike, I know we're in terrible danger there, aren't we? <laughs> Is there a call to deny self and promote godly character and conduct? Finally, a little tangential but very much related in the passage. Are the vulnerable protected? Is the risk of exploitation taken seriously? See, there is much out there which we should have nothing to do with in light of Paul's words to Timothy. And I would encourage you to reflect on Paul's warning and window to sharpen your own awareness and response. But there is a positive side to guarding the gospel that I don't want us to miss in this passage that is filled with a vice list and the bad behavior that we've been given a peek into through this morning in this window. Because when it is proclaimed and applied with sincerity and integrity, our worlds are reordered to reflect the priorities of King Jesus through the gospel. And when that happens, it's beautiful. Consider the antithesis of Paul's warning. Love for others, generosity, humility, consideration, love, gratitude, reconciliation, purity, reverence, the vulnerable in our society, protected and provided for, lives characterized by the power of God through the gospel. That's why this is so vital. Throughout the last days, things like this have stood in sharp contrast to the terrible times described by Paul. And they are a sample of life in God's kingdom when it comes in its fullness. They're a little foretaste of it. And their presence in our lives are a signpost directing others to the source. When the gospel is lived out among us in this way, it is compelling. It is the only good news this world needs. The good news concerning Jesus has the power to make this happen in people's lives. And something that powerful and precious is worth protecting. And it's worth proclaiming. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the gospel. We echo the words of the Apostle Paul who said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We think of Titus where he says that the grace of God has appeared to all men that teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to live upright, holy lives in this generation. Lord, thank you for this warning and for this window and I pray that you would help our hearts and our minds to absorb and that your word would be planted deep within us. You'd help us as we finish our time tonight and as we go off into our week to reflect upon it, to muse over it, to invite your Holy Spirit to have, its tra have his transforming power released in our lives as we seek to live in line with the kingdom of Jesus. Lord, we take this warning seriously that we are in the last days and will continue to be there until you return, Lord Jesus. And in these terrible times, 
May they also be the best of times as people respond to you through the gospel message. As lives are changed, as homes are healed, as marriages are brought back together, as addictions can be broken, and people find freedom and forgiveness. That's only found in the gospel. That is a precious gift. And so help us to guard that trust, to protect it and proclaim it for the glory of Jesus until he comes. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.